Hey, Commute listeners, Dave here. Before we get going, just want to give you a fair heads up if you are listening to this episode with young children. In this first segment, Jay is going to be discussing our good friends, the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy, if you catch my drift. So fair warning, go ahead and jump ahead if you have kids in the car with you and you don't want to hear about our good friends, the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy. You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this, you'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, the rising prices of goods obviously affects all of us, but does inflation also affect the payout of the tooth fairy? You've probably heard the term blacklisted before, and you probably would do anything in your power to stay off of one. But what if being blacklisted was the best thing that ever happened to you? Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, Tom Brady, Michael Phelps, and a guy named Joey Chestnut? We'll tell you what all these people have in common. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, growing up, I had the typical kind of like Tooth Fairy, Easter Bunny, Santa Claus kind of thing going on in our house. And I never really fully bought into the idea of the Easter Bunny. And it was the same with the Tooth Fairy. It just never really seemed like a real thing. Now, Santa Claus was a different story, though. And I probably believed in Santa Claus a little bit too long uh, so for me, <laughs> you had to it, balance it out. It was right about, yeah, it was right about in fifth grade, which I know is late. Okay. I was still believing fifth in grade. Santa Claus. Okay? <laughs> I was still believing in Santa Claus and we were at school and one of the kids in the group was outed for believing in Santa Claus and everybody started laughing at him. So then I joined in and started laughing at him. Okay. Cause it was peer pressure. Right. I felt so guilty because I knew that Santa Claus was watching me. And so I went to the bathroom and I was alone in the bathroom and I said almost like a prayer to Santa Claus, almost like a confession. I was like, Santa, listen, you, you understand, right? Like, you know why I had to do that. So please, please, I, I, I still believe in you. Just don't, you know, don't forget about me in Christmas. Don't put me on the naughty list, even though I laughed. And it was about two weeks after that. My parents were like, okay, he's too old to be believing in Santa Claus. And they broke the news. Uh, so as far as your experience growing up, did you kind of believe in all three? Did you buy into all of them? Did you, uh, you know, what did that look like for you? Man, that's maybe my favorite thing ever about you. And I'm just learning <laughs> um, the tooth fairy, I always had a problem with the tooth fairy because the tooth fairy wasn't consistent. So like some people at school would get like five bucks from the tooth fairy and I got a dime. <laughs> your parents gave you a dime? <laughs> 
<laughs> on all of your baby teeth that fell out of your head, you made two total dollars. <laughs> Apparently, yeah. <laughs> well, Dave, even magical beings like the Tooth Fairy aren't immune to rising inflation. In fact, Dave, insured Delta Dental has been polling parents annually for 24 years to gather data on just how much ends up under the pillow. And the most recently collected data shows a pretty significant jump. The price of a tooth has risen 14% since last year to an all-time high of $5.36, a pretty wide gap from the $1.30 average that was collected 24 years ago. So you were getting gypped. Pretty wide gap from the dime, yeah. (laughs) And uh, Dave, if you're doing the math, you lose 20 teeth in childhood, so we're talking a grand total of a price tag of $107.20 if you need to start planning financially for that. But financial experts will tell you there are certain industries or indicators of the overall health of the S&P 500, which is the index that most financial experts use to get a read on the overall health of the U.S. economy. And strangely enough, the average payout of the tooth fairy is actually a fairly reliable indicator of the S&P 500. And Dave, when you think about it, this does make sense, right? When we have extra money in our pockets, we do tend to place that money in places that we value. NPR's Planet Money notes that extra money tends to go to things like creating memories for children. And so when we have more in our wallets, we're inclined to put a little bit more under the pillow. Then on top of that, $1.30 just doesn't buy much in today's economy. At that rate, a child would need to lose all of their teeth to earn a mere $20. And if you've seen the prices of toys, you know just how little that is. Now, parents are divided on the Tooth Fairy, though. More than half the families polled by Delta reported that the Tooth Fairy is a source of joy in their homes, but many parents also reported that it was a source of stress, not just the dollars and the cents of it all, but also the mounting pressure to create memories for your children immediately over and over again. So how does this tradition even come to us in the first place? Where did it come from? Well, Dave, as with most traditions, the origins are sort of murky. According to Vox, the Tooth Fairy is actually a pretty recent and pretty American idea. While other cultures in the world echo it, such as various people groups in Asia who leave children's teeth as offerings to animals in exchange for a healthy new tooth, these ideas were probably inspired by the American Tooth Fairy, whose earliest reference can be found in 1927. And as the mid-century brought a booming economy as well, the growing idea of what childhood should be in America was brought into the mainstream through advertising and television, as well as the inclusion of fairies in popular media, like in Disney movies, for example. But what does the Tooth Fairy even want with our teeth in the first place? Since our culture hasn't really agreed on this, parents are sort of stranded in a way to come up with their own explanation for why a magical fairy wants to purchase their teeth. Some have taken the opportunity to teach kids about the free market or saving money. Others use it as a dental hygiene lesson, such as framing the tooth fairy as only wanting teeth that don't have cavities. But in today's world, Dave, we live in a social media-fueled culture of parenthood, where many parents feel more pressure than ever before to go above and beyond expectations, outdoing themselves or others, since our parenting is shared so much more in public. Although a visit from the Tooth Fairy doesn't require the setup that a visit from Santa Claus does, it does happen 20 times, and it happens suddenly and without warning oftentimes. 
Due to this, many parents are abandoning the tooth fairy altogether for the sake of their own sanity, to which I say to each their own. You need to make these decisions without outside pressure for your own family because ultimately, like, I get it. I have three kids, so I have to ask myself, do I really want to be the tooth fairy 60 times? But if you choose to keep the myth alive in your own home, you can get some help. Apps exist that allow you to insert a photo of the Tooth Fairy in a photo so you can supply proof of its existence. Or you can even find sites to leave the Tooth Fairy a voicemail if maybe you forgot to throw some money under the pillow one night. So Dave, with all that being said, what's the status in your home? You still have some time to decide. Your son isn't quite ready to lose his teeth yet, although that decision is fast approaching. Are you all going to embrace the Tooth Fairy or are you going to break the cycle? Well, if you stick with dimes, it won't cost you that much for your three kids. But my <laughs> son, uh, so so we recently went through Easter and he was scared to death of the idea of the Easter Bunny. So right now I'm leaning towards skip the Tooth Fairy, but we'll see. Now, instead, Jay, we could just decide to watch the 2010 Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie called The Tooth Fairy, but the reviews aren't great. Let's just take A.O. Scott from At The Movies. His review says, and I quote, is there anything else to say except skip it? (laughs) Jay, the word blacklisted typically carries with it some very negative baggage, right? In fact, the practice of blacklisting is defined as deeming someone or something as a person or a thing that should be avoided or distrusted because of an action that has taken place. So if someone is on what we would call the blacklist, they've done something wrong and we feel like they can no longer be trusted. Jay, here's the thing. You have actually been blacklisted before. Now, would you prefer to tell this story or would you like me to do it? (laughs) Well, uh, I guess uh, for the sake of truth, I should probably be the one to tell it. It was a summer right before I needed a job. It was right between college semesters. And I had previously worked at Old Navy the year before. And so I walked back into Old Navy and I said, hey, I would like to work here again this summer. And they said, okay, but we need you to stay on during the school year. And I said, well, I don't know if I can really do that because school takes up a lot of my time. So then I went out and I applied a few other places, didn't hear anything, and I needed a job right then. So I called Old Navy and I said, hey, you still got that job? And they were like, sure, as long as you work during the school year. And I said, okay. (laughs) And I worked through the summer. And then my boss went to Mexico for two weeks. And it was on that day that I put in my two weeks notice. Effectively landing yourself on a do not hire blacklist. Well, Jay, in 2005, (laughs) a new type of blacklisting began. And this blacklist often ends with a green light. A year before that, in 2004, a film development executive named Franklin Leonard was working for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. Leonard was charged with a task that isn't all that uncommon for development execs. He was handed a huge pile of unmade screenplays for movies and told to find a good one, (laughs) maybe something that would perhaps catch Leo's eye. You know, something, an easy task to do. And Jay, you can picture a huge stack of scripts, but take that mental picture and triple it. Each year, thousands and thousands of potential movie scripts are poured into production companies all around Hollywood. Most of these scripts are awful things you'll never hear about or see up on the big screen. Finding that diamond in the rough is a huge ask, 
to say the least. Leonard was about to head off on vacation when he was given the task, and hoping to actually enjoy some of his time off, he had an idea for a little experiment. He emailed nearly 100 other development execs from around the industry and asked them to submit to him the top 10 unproduced screenplays that they had personally read through over the past year. As payment for those that participated, Leonard promised to compile all of his responses, rank the scripts based on voting, and share the results with the participants. So for some context, Jay, quickly, companies are often all sent the same scripts. Sometimes they all kind of liked it. Sometimes only a few of them liked it. Sometimes it doesn't even get read. So perhaps we, you and I, let's just say theoretically, were both given the same script for a new Godzilla movie. We both liked it, yet it had never been made. A company didn't pick it up. So we would have both submitted that and given that a vote that we liked it. Two votes for Godzilla. Leonard named his little project The Blacklist as both a nod to his own African-American heritage and to the Hollywood writers who had been barred from work because of suspected communist ties during the Cold War many years ago. What if there were a blacklist people actually wanted to be on? Leonard told the LA Times. Well, it wasn't long before he had an answer to that question. Leonard received a ton of responses. He compiled his findings and emailed the first blacklist out before he left for vacation, honestly not thinking much about it. When he returned a week later to check his replies, his list had been forwarded back to him over 50 times from people who didn't know that he was the one who started it. Leonard suspected he might actually be on to something now. Jay, flash forward to now, and the blacklist has become a Hollywood institution. The new list comes out every December, and it carries with it Academy Award levels of fanfare. And all in all, Jay, nearly 450 screenplays from the blacklist over the past 16 years have been turned into actual films. And not just random indie films either. Blockbusters. Award winners. In fact, many of the most recent Oscar winners for Best Picture have come from the blacklist, including films like Argo, The King's Speech, Slumdog Millionaire, and Spotlight. The most liked film ever from the blacklist, The Imitation Game, a drama starring Benedict Cumberbatch about cryptographer Alan Turing, won the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay, in fact, in 2015. The blacklist has evolved with the times and now offers a website that provides resources for both screenwriters and industry members. While it's grown in popularity, though, it still maintains the this-is-for-everyone feel that drove Leonard to create it in the first place. For the entire history of the industry, getting in was always one of those how-do-I-get-ID-if-I-need-ID-to-get-ID situations, he told the LA Times. You had to know somebody. You had to move to LA. You had to network your face off to get your script in someone's hands. If you're a single mother with a mortgage and two kids living in Chicago, you can't pick up your life and move to L.A., but that doesn't mean you're not a good writer. In fact, you might have more insight into the realities of life than the trust fund kid who has his daddy pay for his BMW while he's trying to figure out how to make it in Hollywood. The Blacklist helps balance all that out. This year's List J features 73 scripts, each requiring at least seven likes from other studio execs to make the final cut. And the number one most liked script this year, a movie to keep your eyes out for in the coming years, Cauliflower. 
quick synopsis on the movie. Under the cruel guidance of a mysterious coach, an ambitious high school wrestler struggles to become a state champion while battling a bizarre infection in his ear that both makes him dominant in the sport and threatens his sanity. And Jay, what's interesting about that is, I'm not kidding you, until last week, I actually didn't know how to say cauliflower. I always said cauliflower. <laughs> I mean, it was like a big deal. Like, like eight, eight or nine people really jumped me about it at the same time. We were talking about like salads, and I said, "Yeah, it's got cauliflower over there." And they just lost. Oh their mind. man! So you like really enunciated the Y. So if you spelled yeah. it, you would spell it like C O L L Y, and then flour, cauliflower. <laughs> <laughs> So, Dave, under the pressure of competition with a lot of people watching you, how many hot dogs, this is bun included, do you think that you could put down in 10 minutes? Well, I don't really like hot dogs, so I'm going to say one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everybody else would be slamming them. You'd be like, you guys got any ketchup? You'd You'd just be trying to enjoy your one hot dog. Well, Dave, at the 2001 Nathan's famous 4th of July International Hot Dog Eating Contest, the winner was a familiar face, a man named Joey Chestnut, who consumed 76 hot dogs in 10 minutes, breaking his own world record from last year by one hot dog. And yes, Dave, like we said, this does include the bun as well. In fact, Dave, Chestnut's run can only be described in terms of total and complete domination. His 2021 title was his sixth in a row and the 14th of his career. Since 2007, when he set the world record of 66 hot dogs, he has steadily broken his own record one to two hot dogs at a time to creep up to the current 76. And the domination, it's almost on levels of Michael Jordan or Babe Ruth all-time great status. In fact, last year, Chestnut consumed three times as many hot dogs as the second-place competitor, who topped out at only 26. In 2020, Forbes ran an article investigating just how many hot dogs could a human body consume during 10 minutes, as in, what is our peak ceiling? And the number reached by the writer Bruce Lee is 83, which Joey Chestnut has steadily been creeping towards every year. So how has Joey Chestnut maintained this level of absolute dominance for so long? Is there something lacking in us normal people that isn't lacking in him? What does it take to be a competitive eater? Well, for one, you have to master the technique. Competitive eaters train for competitions and sharpen their skills over time. Competitive eaters also wet the entirety of the hot dog, bun included, by dipping it in water, for example, so that they slide down their throats easier. Competitors also move around a lot during a competition. It can almost look like they're dancing in a way. But this is in an effort to move the contents of their stomach through their digestive system faster to make room for more. You won't find a successful competitive eater who has a gag reflex either for obvious reasons. As in all the competitive sports, though, practice makes perfect. In a publication in the American Journal of Roten Genealogy, researchers examined the stomachs of competitive eaters and showed that their stomachs essentially can stretch much more than a control subject's stomach. And while this could be attributed to the fact that some people may just have more stretchy stomachs than others, realistically, there's an aspect of training involved here. 
the more you stretch out the stomach, the more elastic it becomes. And part of the intense training to become a competitive eater involves binging food and liquid to expand stomach elasticity. And Dave, while you'd expect that professional eaters would be overweight, the opposite is actually true. In fact, competitive eaters weight train and do cardio as part of their overall training to increase their metabolism. In fact, many of the top competitive eaters in the world are actually in very good shape, ironically enough. Despite this, the University of Michigan released a study last year that eating one hot dog can shave 36 minutes off of one's healthy life. Immediately after the study was released, social media sites were very concerned for Joey Chestnut, who has eaten an estimated 19,200 hot dogs over his last 16 years competitively. Doing the math, Joey Chestnut has lost a year and 115 days, according to this study. But to me, this is just a small price to pay for eternal glory. But Dave, in addition to this, Joey Chestnut holds the world records for eating Twinkies, pastrami sandwiches, ramen noodle cups, gumbo, mutton sandwiches, tamales, boysenberry pie, shrimp cocktail, euros, and many more other food items. So I think we need some more math done here ultimately. Now, in response to concern for his life, Chestnut simply responded on Twitter, quote, interesting, I might need to eat more nuts to get time back. Now, Dave, you've told me before that you were actually more of a fan of Joey Chestnut's rival. Yes, yes. Kobayashi, the godfather of competitive eating to his fans like me. Kobayashi, a six-time champion of the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. He dominated it until Joey Chestnut showed up on the scene. Now, Joey Chestnut's kind of a stocky guy. Kobayashi, super skinny. He's five foot eight, just kind of a small person. To me, it's more impressive that Kobayashi could put down the hot dogs the way he could. Joey Chestnut comes along and it's just kind of whatever. <laughs> Joey Chestnut's just kind of in a, in a world all his own. I mean, you can't even compare him and to Jay, anybody. you talked about all of the other eating records that Joey Chestnut has. You actually left out my favorite one. So Joey Chestnut holds the record for most hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes <laughs> at 141. 141 hard-boiled eggs in eight minutes. He also ate 39 and a half bowls of red beans and rice in eight minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Check us out. We're on social. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay Sisson, I'm Dave Trop. We'll see you next week. Hold on. My washing machine's making a noise in there. It's singing its little song. <laughs> it's a pretty long song. It's a really long song. <laughs> I mean, it wants you to. It really wants you to know that your clothes are done. That your clothes are dry.